Today is Palm Sunday, and we read in our Bible that on Palm Sunday is when Christ entered into Jerusalem, and what's very neat about the Gospels is the bulk of the information that we have about Jesus comes from uh, the last week of his life, and all of the Gospel writers spend um, the majority of their Gospel talking about that last week, and we have such great detail about that. And so I hope that you'll take time as you go through this week uh, to go back and read some of those things that Jesus did during the time as he was preparing to go to the cross. And it's so um, rich to see uh, the care that he put into his disciples, uh, the teaching that he gave them even in the last week of his life as he was preparing uh, to carry out Um, the final parts of his mission here on earth. And it's amazing to see um, the time and care that he spends with them. And he never stops his mission of teaching and preaching the gospel, even uh, as his life on earth was coming to an end. And so uh, I hope that um, this week we're encouraged as we see those things in his word. I invite you to stand with me this morning. As we read Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. The Bible says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of the oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You may be seated. This text is obviously very dark. 
very tragic, and in some ways, odd. Odd that it would be here, really written by Mark as an aside, something that is used to explain something that has been mentioned that has previously not been given to the audience of the work. We're told here that John is dead. And so Mark then inserts for us an explanation of how it was that John died. And he inserts it here where Herod has heard about what Jesus is doing. He heard about Jesus sending out his disciples. He hears about Jesus' healings, about his miracles. That information comes to Herod and he has questions. Apparently, at this time, the entire countryside had questions. Jesus has become somewhat famous. He has become known. He is of some renown now in this community and in this part of the region. And so there is this question about, well, who is he? Who is Jesus? This question reaches from those who are of a common background, the, the peasants, the farmers, they ask this question, but, but so at this point does the king of the region. Herod asks the question, who is Jesus? It's an important question. It's a question that needs to be answered. It's a question that has been asked for 2,000 years. And as we come to this particular week on our calendar where we are celebrating today Palm Sunday, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, and we celebrate next Sunday the resurrection of the Savior, who is Jesus? See, for Herod... To accept who Jesus is requires a change of heart. A change of heart that he apparently does not have. Herod has a wicked heart. A heart that is full of sin. A heart that is controlled by sin. And that prevents him from understanding who Jesus is. He gives maybe his best guess in the first few verses, but he is guessing along with a whole lot of other people who get the answer wrong. See, some had said in verse 14, some had said that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. An interesting notion, considering that many people in that time did not even acknowledge that resurrection from the dead was possible. But some apparently thought that is what had happened. John had been raised, and that's how, he says in verse 14, or this group, that's how they say that Jesus has these miraculous powers. It's John, he's been raised from the dead. Others would say, and we read this in the other Gospels, we see that others would say that it is Elijah. The prophet has come back. Elijah has returned to us, and that's who Jesus is. He is Elijah come again. The Elijah being the great prophet from the Old Testament, considered by the Jewish people to be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. 
Others couldn't accept fully that it was Elijah, so they say, well, it's, it's actually one of the other prophets, or he is another prophet. He's not one of the ones from old. He's not raised from the dead, but he's like the guys that we used to have. If you go to your Old Testament and you read through those last books in particular, we read about, uh, we read about a number of prophets who have come, a number of prophets who came and spoke the word of God to the people. They say, that's who it is. He's like this prophet that we used to have. He's like the guys who used to come and, and tell us what God has said. But Herod in particular, we see in verse 16, is really concerned. Because Herod had done something terrible, and he feels as if, or at least he fears as if, it has come back to hurt him. He says in verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, when he heard of all that Jesus was doing, when he heard of the things that he was accomplishing, the things that he was, the miracles that he was performing, he says, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. So he goes back and he embraces the mindset of the first. He says, the one I killed has come back. These are all misunderstandings about Jesus. Now, granted, John is the greatest prophet who ever lived. John is the forerunner of Christ. He is Jesus' cousin who God sent to share the good news that the Messiah was coming. He had a, an important and a vital role, but John was very clear that he was not worthy. He was not worthy to even tie Jesus' shoe. He was not worthy to be compared to the Messiah. He was not worthy to be compared with the one who he called the Lamb of the world. He's not worthy. And so Herod, in in this instance that we have before us, Herod misses this question, who is Jesus? And I think this is an important question for you and I to ask this Sunday as we're getting ready for Easter, this, this last Sunday before Easter when we think about and focus on the resurrection of Christ, when we think about the gift that He gave us in dying in our place, the redemption that we have because Christ has died the death that we deserve to die. Who is Jesus? See, Herod has an opinion. The farmer who Jesus had passed by had an opinion. The one who had seen Jesus perform a miracle had an opinion. The disciples had an opinion. But what we find is that their opinions and their thoughts were inadequate to describe the Savior that was in their midst. So I ask you, who is Jesus? I posted uh, a survey online this week. And in that survey, which had a lot of different information about people's opinions on God, which is always a dangerous thing to do anyways, ask someone's opinion on God, 17%, which is almost one in five, 
believe that Jesus is the first creature that God created. Now think about that. If that number was to hold true in our room, one out of every five people that I talked to would believe that Jesus was the first thing that God created. God was doing His creating. He was getting ready to do all this stuff. And Jesus is the first thing that He came to. See, that's a problem. That's a problem because the Bible tells us that He was not created, but rather He was the one who created. How, and trust me, that survey went on to continue in a long string of disappointing results. How is it that the evangelical church, the church that proclaims the gospel, or at least allegedly does, how is it that we will survive if there is such ignorance about who Jesus really is? How will we get through? How will we continue to reach generation after generation if the church does not know and understand and believe who Jesus is? If we don't understand Him as the Creator, if we don't understand Him as the beginning and the end, if we don't understand Him as the Savior of the world, if we don't understand Him as the one and only Son of God, if we don't understand Him as God incarnate, God in flesh, if we don't understand Him as the ruler of the universe, the one who reigns over all, if we don't understand that, how is it that we are going to accomplish the mission that God has given us to reach the world with the good news of the gospel? I would propose to you that we won't. We, we won't. It's not going to happen. It's why so many churches have become ineffective in reaching people with the gospel. It's because they've got their theology wrong. It's because they can't understand, they can't answer the question, who is Jesus? Because I would guess that there are a lot of people who occupy the pews of Baptist churches this morning that when they read this list, this, well, he was John the Baptist raised, he had miraculous powers, he was Elijah, he's a prophet. They would, they would see that and they would hear that and it would just simply be good enough for them. They would hear these false teachings and misunderstandings about Jesus and that would be good enough for them. But the fact of the matter is, it's simply not adequate. The church cannot survive if we have insufficient knowledge about who Jesus is. Now, the text before us this morning does not then turn into a detailed accounting of who Jesus is, step by step. What it shows us is the consequences for Herod of not knowing who Jesus is, of not realizing what Jesus was there to do. Because, see, Herod's heart is captured by sin. Herod's heart is, is possessed and owned 
by sin. And even though God continually tries to reach Herod through this man named John, Herod continually rejects him even though he knows better. I want us to see as we walk through these verses, and we're going to do so rather quickly, we walk through these verses and see what it is that sin does to someone when they have a misunderstanding about what God is doing. When sin captures a life, as opposed to the knowledge of who the Savior is, we see these things, these terrible things, this chain of events happen. Because, see, I want to assure you that when we have insufficient evidence, insufficient knowledge about who Jesus is, when we can't answer that question, who is Jesus, and answer it accurately, it leads us eventually into sin. What I'm saying, just to be clear, if you don't know the answer to the question of who is Jesus, at some point, you're going to have to choose between Jesus and sin. And if you don't really know who Jesus is, it becomes very easy to choose the decision to follow after the sinful desires of your heart. So look, beginning of verse 17. These are the things that happen to Herod because he, he doesn't have the sufficient evidence of who Jesus is. He doesn't have this knowledge of who God is and follow after him. Verse 17, he arrests John. Herod does. He arrests John. He does so on behalf of his wife. John is falsely imprisoned, though he is righteous and holy. Herod forgets, he dismisses what is true about John, that he is righteous and that he is holy, and he imprisons him, though he has no reason. That's what sin does. He's got a competitor out there. John, if you remember, John has everyone coming to him. Everyone wants to hear John's message. Everyone is being baptized. Everyone is repenting of their sin. They're coming from everywhere to do so, and Herod wants nothing to do with it. Herod has a wife, and his wife is not one that he is supposed to be married to. He's married to this woman that was originally married to his brother, and the Bible forbid that. And so here comes John, and he is constantly reminding him, what you're doing is not lawful. Not just it's unethical, but from a biblical standpoint, from a standpoint of law, it was unlawful. Leviticus 18, 16 had made it sinful, had pointed out it was sinful to marry your brother's wife when your brother was still alive. Herod was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. He had taken advantage of that. And he had married this woman that was originally married to his brother. And John had come about and made it difficult for them. 
If you think about John the Baptist, you think about his ministry. He was out there in the wilderness. He wasn't worried about too many things. He wasn't worried about the consequences. And so he comes and he tells Herod, what you're doing is sinful. But Herod doesn't care. He has John arrested. He has him falsely imprisoned because sin had consumed his heart and he did not realize the purpose of John's ministry, but rather he wanted to conceal his sin. And of course, his sin was that he had married his sister-in-law. Now, it continues on when we get to verse 18. We see his sin continue because he imprisons him, though John's message has put him under conviction. Look at verse 18 for what John said it was lawful and look further in verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When John spoke, when John was standing before Herod and he spoke and he, he told him that he was living in sin, he told him that what he was doing was wrong, something inside Herod stirred. Something inside him made him realize that, that there was something about this man. He, he could hear him and his words, even though they were obviously pointed, they were obviously hurtful, they were obviously convicting, there was something about him that made Herod think. It left him perplexed, but he, he heard them with gladness. What was John doing? He was simply conveying the word of God. He, he was simply doing that role in which he was supposed to as a prophet and in sharing with Herod that this is what God has said, what you're doing is wrong. And yet, he imprisons him anyways. He allows the voice of truth that is speaking into his life to be silenced. Why would you do that? It's because you have a misunderstanding, a, a wrong understanding of who God is. See, when we understand who Jesus is and we understand what he has done for us and what he has to offer us, we welcome his voice into our life. We welcome words of truth into our life. Now, they're hard to hear sometimes. They make us uncomfortable sometimes. We don't like to have our sin pointed out. We don't like to have our shortcomings mentioned to us. And yet, as a believer in Christ, part of our our responsibility, part of our life in living in, in community with one another and living in this relationship with one another called the church. It's about people being able to speak to us and, and point out our faults and our shortcomings and, and offer us godly instruction. But look at our society today. When anyone attempts to do that, even with the most love that they can give, it's seen as closed-mindedness, as bigotry, as hatred. Even though, even though God has blessed us with the ability to share his word with other people. You know, last Sunday night, we were looking during our Bible study at 
in the book of Genesis where God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was amazing, something that I had never realized as we were working through and walking through that text together on Sunday night was that God had offered his word of of provision, his word of, of forgiveness, his call to repentance to that town, those two towns that definitely did not deserve it. He offered them, even up until the last moment, a chance to walk away from the destruction that was coming. He offered them the opportunity to turn from their sin that had consumed that that area to the extent where God was going to destroy it. He offered them the chance to turn from their sin and live. And yet they ridiculed the messenger who offered them forgiveness. Why? Because they could not answer the question. They did not know who God was. They did not know the forgiveness that he was offering. They did not know the destruction that was coming upon them if they did not turn from their sin. And the same is true here with Herod. John the Baptist is saying, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He is offering him this chance to hear God's word and to turn from his sin. And he doesn't take it. Because he doesn't have a firm grasp on who this guy is, who John is, who he represents, the one who he is talking about in Christ. Now he goes on. Not only does he falsely imprison John, not only does he do so even though John is speaking truth to him, but if we look in verse 22, he, he allows his lust to control him. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. This just shows how twisted Herod's mind is. We have have really one verse earlier, or in verse uh, 20, he, he hears John gladly. But then in verse 21, he's throwing this party and his niece, don't miss that, his niece comes in to dance. It's not his daughter because I think if it were, it had been referred to as his daughter. But here it is his wife who used to be married to his brother. It is her daughter that makes it his niece. And his niece comes in and dances before them provocatively. And he and his guests and everyone there are impressed with her dancing. And he says, I'll give you whatever you want. How how dumb is that? I mean, how just utterly ridiculous is it? That this girl comes in and she dances and now he says, I'll give you whatever, verse 23, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Sin had consumed him at that point. He 
promises away half of his kingdom for a provocative dancer. And in so doing, he is lusting after his niece. At this point, the words of John have gone out the window. They're just not even being listened to at this point. Just irrelevant. John says it's unlawful for you to to marry your sister-in-law or former sister-in-law. It's just not lawful. And now he is lusting after his niece and promising her half of his kingdom. So the girl asks, or the girl, she doesn't know. Who knows even how old she was? She could have been very young in this culture. So she goes out and she asks her mother, who hates John with a passion, you know, he's trying to mess things up. She's married to the king. She's enjoying all the riches of being married to the king. And he's trying to mess it up by telling her husband, hey, you're not supposed to do this. She wants to have him killed, we've already been told, but she hadn't been able to. And so now she has the perfect opportunity. As a matter of fact, verse 21 leads off with that. But the opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gives the banquet. So she goes out and she asks her mother, hey, what should we ask for? You can have half the kingdom. What should we ask for? But sin controlled Herodias' heart, and she says, Go back in and tell him. The head, verse 24, the end of verse 24, the head of John the Baptist. That's what I want. I want him dead. I want this guy who is speaking truth into my husband's life, who is telling my husband that what he is doing is sinful. I want him silenced. He is trying to mess things up. I want this word that he is speaking to be put to death. And so the girl walks back in and she says, I want you to give me at once, not later. Apparently Herod, obviously, he had been stalling. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it hits him what he said, because that's what sin does. It seems good for a while and then it goes away. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, what he had said, and his guess, he did not want to break his word to her. He was concerned about his oath that he had made. It didn't matter that it was wrong. It didn't matter that it was sinful. Friends, there's nothing that, that tells us that we have to stick to something we have said when it is wrong. That's where there can be repentance. That's where there can be apology. But that does not happen to John. I mean, to Herod because he is consumed by his pride. He's got to keep his oath and he doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of his guests. They'll think little of him. They enjoyed the show that his niece had put on. They had had the same feelings towards his niece that Herod had had. And so now he want, they want him to make good on his promise. He said he would do it so he should keep his word, even though it is sinful. And so he does. Again, because he has no concept, he has no understanding fully of who John is and who John has come to proclaim. And so he sends the executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. This 
girl had been treated basically no better than a prostitute. Her mother sent her out to do something. She comes back and the reward that she received for all this, all this mistreatment by these men in this banquet, she gets nothing for it. She, she gives the head to her mother. John's disciples come, and they take his body away, and they bury it. And Mark has taken this section of Scripture, and he plugged it in after his disciples, or after Jesus' disciples had been sent out. He plugs it in before Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he puts up to us this question. Who is Jesus? Because we've seen in Herod the consequences of missing that. And I think what we are seeing increasingly in our culture and in our churches is that when people miss the question of who is Jesus, it becomes easy to fall into sin. If you look at many of the denominations outside of our own who long ago questioned that question, who long ago came up with incorrect and insufficient answers to the question of who is Jesus, what you see as you go to those churches today is that in large part they are empty. They're empty because once you begin to belittle and deny who Jesus is, it becomes irrelevant. If Jesus is not the one and only Son of God, who in the beginning was with God, who has made all that there is, who died on a cross for our sin, if you deny that, then what's the point in church? If you miss that, if you come up with an answer that is insufficient, if he was just a great teacher, he was a good, uh, he was a good rabbi, he was an interesting person, he did some nice things. It's not really that impressive to me anymore. There's a lot of nice people in the world. There's a lot of people who do good things. There are people who heal. You can go to the hospital and many of the things that are wrong with you, they can take care of. And they can do so with incredible accuracy. I've sat under some amazing teachers who really understood things about the world and about education and could articulate those things in a, in a manner that was very pleasing to the ears and very informative. But they're not really saviors. They're not really that impressive. They're not really worth giving your life over to. They're not really worth putting your faith and trust in for all matters. See, I think that Herod misses it. Because he never could understand who John was. And by implication, he could never understand the one who John was proclaiming. He could never understand that this guy who he had arrested had been sent by God to proclaim that the Lord had sent his Savior. 
He never could understand that John was the one that the Old Testament points to as, as one crying out in the wilderness that the day of the Lord has come. Make way. Make ready. He never could understand that. He never could understand that the one who he had down in that dark and damp prison cell, that one who he had beheaded, was the one who was pointing him and the world toward the Savior. And so by implication, when we come to this text and we read that Herod heard of what Jesus was doing, it's not surprising to us that he misunderstands who Jesus was. He had every opportunity when John was alive to realize who John was and John's purpose. And when John is dead and Jesus is on the scene and Jesus is preaching and proclaiming, instead of understanding that this is who John was talking about, now he wants to think that it's John come back to life. He missed it. He missed understanding who Jesus is. And so I would ask you this morning, I would beg you this morning to examine your heart. What a perfect week to do so in this, in this week that's referred to as holy, this week where we celebrate what Christ did in, in going to the cross and dying in our place and God raising Him from the dead. I would ask you to think about who is Jesus? What do you think about him? How do you understand him? Is he the guy you sing about on Sunday? Because if so, that's pretty insufficient. Is he the one whose name you utter when you stump your toe, smash your finger? pretty insufficient is he the one whose name you tag on at the end of the prayers that you utter to God sometimes because it's pretty insufficient because if Jesus is who he says he is if Jesus is who the Bible proclaims him to be then it must cause us to have a radical re-examination of our life. Jesus doesn't call us to the type of faith where he ends up as a prophet or Elijah or maybe even John the Baptist risen. But we have to know and acknowledge Him as Lord and King of our life, as the one who came and died the death that we deserve so that we could have an eternal relationship with His heavenly Father. The one who wants to own our lives. The one who proclaims that he is the only way to salvation. Everything else is insufficient. And what startles me when I 
read a statistic like the ones that I saw online this week, and I, I, I see the opinions and thoughts that people have about God, what I realize is that many people, if not most people, who, who attend Baptist churches, who go to church anywhere, are perfectly happy with an insufficient view of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say that many people today who decide on a church go to a church because they have an insufficient view of Jesus. Now, they don't walk in, and if they filled out a card, it said, well, I'm looking for a church with an insufficient view of Jesus. But they want to go to a place that never challenges them, a place where they never hear anything that they they don't agree with or that they have to think about, They want to go to a place that doesn't challenge them to serve, that doesn't challenge them to give their heart and life fully to Christ. They want to go to a place where they can sit, they can hear something that makes them feel good, they can hear some music that they really like, and they can leave and forget about it until the next Sunday. It's an insufficient view of Jesus. It won't work. It doesn't save. That's, that's, that's not a savior. See, the, the interesting thing about pointing to the prophets and Elijah is if you go and read what Elijah said and you go and read what the prophets said, what they were longing for is someone greater than them. What they were longing for was that someone would come along greater than them that could provide a salvation that they could not. What they did is they spoke the word of God and and pointed people toward the one that was coming that would save them. And friends, that's Jesus. He offers us forgiveness and grace and mercy. But friends, we must not have an insufficient view of who he is. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King, the Savior, the Prophet, the Priest. He is all of those things. And He calls on us to follow after Him. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we... We're grateful that we can come into your house this morning and worship. We can gather together as a family of faith. God, we can pray and know that you hear us. We can sing and God, know that you rejoice with us as we celebrate your goodness. God, our feeble, sinful minds struggle to understand you, to understand who you are, to understand all that you've done for us. But God, I pray that you would impress upon each one of our hearts that you are so much more than a prophet. You're so much more than John the Baptist raised. You're so much more then Elijah, all of them fall at your feet and worship. And God, I pray that we do the same. God, I pray that you are the object of our worship.
that you are the only place that we put our hope and our trust and our faith. God, help us to be fully dependent upon you and your goodness and mercy and grace. God, I just thank you that you care for us. I thank you that you lead and guide our hearts. And Lord, I just pray that as we we have this time together in singing and in closure, God, I just pray that we would leave here with a sense of awe about who you are. That we would reject anything that is insufficient. And that, God, we would realize fully, God, that you love us and that you care for us. God, you've given us everything. Lord, God, lead and guide our hearts during this time. Help us to see you and know you better. Help us to understand, God, who you are. And we pray this in the precious name of your Son, Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning as we're getting ready to sing. I want to encourage you with this. It's, it's easy. It's easy to have an insufficient understanding of who Jesus is. It is. It, it's, it's, it's simply harder for us to acknowledge that there's someone greater than us. There's someone who has made us. There's someone who loves us but, but expects that we would be dependent upon him. But I would just pray for each one of you and for myself that we would reject any notion that makes Jesus less than what he is. That we would reject any ideas that make Jesus less than the great and powerful Savior and creator of the world. Because, friends, that is the only one who can offer us hope. As we sing and you have the opportunity to respond, I I just want to challenge you that if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in other things that are insufficient, you've trusted in yourself, you've trusted in the things of this world, you've tried to find your hope there, that Christ is the only place we can have hope. He is the only one we can depend on and trust in. And if you've never done that today, I would love to share with you how. I invite you to respond as we sing this morning.